But today we are going to be finishing up in Mark. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Great Commission. So if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Mark 16. And it'll be verses 14 through 20. And before we get into this, uh, would you guys just pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is just uh, a blessing and an honor and a privilege to be here this morning um, talking about something that is so, so important to us as followers of Jesus. Lord, the the great commission that, that you have given us to go into all the world and make more disciples everywhere. Uh, Lord, as you well know, I don't have the wisdom or the knowledge or the words to say. Um, So God, I just pray that you would use me this morning as as your mouthpiece to your people, that you would give me the words, Holy Spirit, um, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us today in your word. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so, you know, I was really considering just reading through a couple of the texts we're going to talk about today and just going through them because I think you need to just dwell in them. I think a lot of times we gloss over this part of the Bible. We're like, yeah, God gave us the Great Commission. Next. Um, and we, we go to the next gospel or we go to Acts. But really, our whole faith hinges on the Great Commission. So read with me if you would. Uh, verse 14 It says here, afterward he appeared, this is Jesus, to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So what Todd talked about last week, Jesus shows up and he's like, look, you guys didn't believe the women, you didn't believe the two disciples who saw me and he gives them a hard time because they didn't believe him. They didn't have the faith. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents in their hands, and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So a couple of things we got to deal with before we get into the, the, the main point here. So maybe in some of your Bibles, you notice that this chunk is in parentheses, this, uh, let's see, I think it's 16 to 20, is in parentheses. Um, and it talks about in your footnotes, if you have footnotes, that it's not in all versions, this, this part where Jesus talks about what's going to happen with the signs and the stuff as they go out. Um, so, but that's not a big deal. Don't, don't get worried. Uh, it's actually a good thing. And as they kind of pick apart the gospel, they see that not every part of it lines up with another gospel. That's a good thing because stories that are exactly, that corroborate exactly, usually are lies. So what happens is you get different little bits and pieces as you go through the Gospels of the same message. And so everything in here is backed up somewhere else in Scripture. 
Um, especially, you know, the, the first part about going into all the world. Um, but what happens a lot of times is these verses can get taken out of context. As we know, context is key, or is it king? It's one of those, <laughs> both probably. So the first couple of things here in verse 17, pick up with me. We'll deal with quickly, and then we'll get into the main point. They cast out demons. That's pretty normal. That's going to happen. Jesus says that. We believe that. They will speak in new tongues. This a lot of times is when it gets taken out of context where people put an emphasis on tongues. And if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not saved. Not true. Um, that does happen. People have different gifts. Paul speaks to people having many different gifts. And that tongues is not even the most important of them that we should pray for the other gifts. Ask the Spirit for the other gifts like healing, like prophecy, like those things. Um, and not get stuck on speaking in tongues. And I would say for us today, we should be much more concerned with this commission than we are with whether we can uh, babble some language and have someone interpret it for us. Uh, the, last, the last couple things here is the drink deadly poison and it will not hurt them. They'll pick up serpents and uh, they, they won't die from it. So a couple things you probably are beating me to the punch here. The, uh, the serpent handling, like we don't, we don't see us people passing around the rattlesnakes today um, because that's a really bad idea. And Jesus did not say, everybody go grab a cobra and bring it with you. What he says is sometimes things are going to happen to you, there, that there is an enemy that's working against you and stuff might kill you and I'm going to protect you. So we don't do that. Like Paul, for instance, when he's on his journey to Rome, he gets, he's gathering firewood after he's just been shipwrecked, and a serpent jumps out and bites him on the arm, and, and he should be dead. But he lives, and, and then they're like, wow, and all that is to bring glory to God. The last thing, the deadly poison. Um, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Just, just don't. Poison will kill you. Scripture says don't put your Lord to the test. Um, I actually know an instance that's kind of personal to me. A couple of missionaries that I'm very close to um, were serving in the Caribbean for a couple decades. In one instance, they go into this village. They're sharing the gospel. Everything's great. They have dinner with these folks. They give them a hut to stay in. And these are like witch doctor kind of tribe going on here in the jungle. And uh, they go into their hut for the night. And they wake up the next morning. They come out. And the whole village is there, and they're all wide-eyed and just staring at them, and like shocked, and the witch doctor like is pale, and he falls over, and because they weren't supposed to wake up. They were, they were poisoned the night before at dinner, and they should be dead. That's what God's talking about. Don't go around drinking poison. Everything with a Mr. Yuck sticker, do stay away from that. God is protecting his people in those instances because we do have an enemy that was working against us, but he is greater. Okay, so... I want to give you a couple stats here on the Great Commission. Let's go back and get that fresh in our minds real quickly. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So a couple stats here. There are over, this is talking about unreached people. There are over 200 million people in North America, where we live, that don't realize that life is more about getting better possessions and bigger houses. There's 3,000 animistic tribes. That means people who worship animistic spirits and stuff like that in Africa who have not heard the gospel. There are 350 million Buddhists. 
in Asia and around the world who are worshiping Buddha. And Buddha is not worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. There are 950 million Hindus. That's almost a billion. And there, some say that there might be very well a billion Hindus who worship more gods than you and I can even name or think of that are not worthy of all the glory. There's a billion people in China, North Korea, other communist countries that, that are under the regime of, of atheism and, and disbelief who haven't heard the gospel. There's 1.5 billion, okay, so now we're at a billion and a half Muslims in the Middle East and around the world praying four times a day, making pilgrimages to Mecca, worshiping a false god. Because Allah is not worth all the praise and all the glory that we can give. Now the command we just read here, which by the way is a non-negotiable. So if you're taking notes here, first thing, it's a non-negotiable. Go into all the world. There's no ifs or ands or buts or if you don't feel called or if, you know, maybe that's Eric's gifting or, you know, that's for something for the pastors to do and the people who are evangelists. No. If you're a disciple, the command is go. So non-negotiable. And the command is in the Greek, pantata ethne, right, which means all peoples. Okay, so not every nation like we think of today. Like, I mean, America didn't even exist when Jesus gave this command, shocker. Uh, the world doesn't revolve around the United States, even though God has blessed us here. Uh, he's talking about all peoples, all people groups. That's why we can, people who have a, a language that is different or an ethnic group that is different, um, that may exist in, in just a couple square kilometers of each other within a country. All people. So it's, it's not a general command, but it's specifically to make, their, and they estimate there's 11,500 people groups, maybe more, uh, in the world, right? So there's about 260-something countries, something like that. Someone can correct me later. Um, and there's 11,500 people groups that are unreached. Um, I'm sorry. Out of that 11,500, there are 6,500 unreached, meaning less than 2% are followers of Jesus. It's not an issue of if these people are lost. It's an issue of people if, if they even have access to the gospel. Like, we have lost people in Easton, right? But they have access to the gospel because guess what? You live in Easton. Oasis is in Easton. They have access to the gospel. These are people who most likely will live their life and die without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings up a couple things that we have to deal with also quickly here. And I call them the what if questions. Like, you know, there's what if there's that one innocent guy who never did anything wrong um, in Africa or somewhere. And, you know, like if he dies, he's totally going to heaven, right? Well, uh, let me just unpack that for you. There was one innocent guy ever. And we killed him and nailed him to a tree. Um, so... Any innocent guys after that don't exist because if they did, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to come in the first place. We're all guilty, in other words. Uh, the second one was like, what if the, there's the guy who didn't hear, uh, you know, the gospel, what happens to him? And scripture deals with that too is there's none without excuse. What we can see in nature, this is Romans 1, 
um, is revealed to us about God, that there is a creator, that there is a designer. They think even Native American tribes before the Catholics came uh, to evangelize them might have even believed in something more close to God the Father than what the Catholics were selling them and enslaving them into. And so those are the couple what-ifs. All right, back to the, to the meat here. So if you would, I want to I just encourage you. We, we heard some hard things here. Um, but point two, it is achievable. So we have, it's non-negotiable, but guess what? It is achievable. Flip with me to Matthew uh, 24, and it is going to be Matthew 24, 9 to 13. Jesus gives a little pep talk to the disciples here. And he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, right? We're seeing that. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, so first few verses do not sound like great news. You're like, Jesus, aren't you like about to, this is when he's about to send them out and, and all this is going on and this is good stuff. It's supposed to be charged up to go out. No, no, no. He says, there's going to be a cost to going out. People are going to hate you if you're living for me. They hated me. What do you think is going to happen to you, my servants? But we know it's achievable because of this. Verse 14, in the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, pentata ethne, all peoples, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus gives us a promise there, and we know when Jesus makes a promise, he's telling you something more sure than guess what, the sun's going to rise in the east tomorrow, because guess what, the sun could choose to come up over the south pole tomorrow, and guess what, Jesus' promises are still going to come true. And then he gives us another promise. He says, and then, once my gospel, once my word has been to all peoples, pentata ethne, then the end will come. Then I'm going to come back. So it is achievable because one God has told us it's going to happen uh, before he comes back. Two, it's achievable because God is a God-centered God, and he will accomplish his will. Okay? Um, so, God is all about bringing glory to himself, bringing glory and exalting himself. We see that all through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That's what he's about. And I get it. Maybe you're thinking you're, you might be kind of new here or, or new to, to this God thing. And you're like, that seems kind of arrogant, doesn't it? And it would be very arrogant if I was the one who said it. Um, because guess what? The universe doesn't revolve around me. But um, my question would be, so if not himself, who would we have him exalt? You? Me? Eric? Because we would all make terrible gods. 
because we're not worthy of all the glory and all the praise. And the center of the universe does not revolve around us. It does revolve around God. And so it's not arrogant because if the universe revolves around you, there you are. That's, that's kind of, if you're the creator, then the universe does in fact revolve around you. And so you are the one who is worthy of all the exaltation and praise. And God time and time again in scripture says, I'm going to complete this, this mission of reconciling people to myself um, which actually is a part of the Oasis vision and mission, if you know that. Um, and I'm going to do it for my own name, not for, for your name, not because of Austin and, and am I going to do this, but because I'm the Lord God, I'm going to make a way for all people to be in a relationship with me. You can look at Genesis Chapters 12 through 28 are all about God making a promise to Abraham, saying, look, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations of the world are going to know that I am God. He says the same thing to Isaac. He says the same thing to Jacob. In Exodus 14.4, when God is taking them with Moses out of Egypt, he's He says, I'm going to do this because I want Egypt to know that I am God. And so when you're fleeing and and I'm throwing the plagues at them and I open the sea and you guys run through and then I close it on the Egyptians, that is so that Egypt will know I'm God. He continues. I mean, it's all through the the Old Testament and we don't have time to talk about it. It's all through the New Testament too. We don't have time to talk about it today, but just to give you an example, Joshua 5, right? The battle of Jericho. So you get the Israelites, they're coming out of uh, the desert for 40 years. They're going into the promised land. Now Joshua is this guy who's a warrior, right? He's, he's the general of uh, the Israelites. He's prepared for battle. He's got an army of dudes who's been preparing for battle for like 40 years. Or, well, no, they were 20. Anyway, um, not the point. So they go up to Jericho, and God says, I'm going to win this battle because... I want everyone to see that I'm God and you are my people and I have chosen to bless you, not because you did anything special, but because you're my people, because I love you. And so uh, he knows here, right, uh, Joshua, that there's a couple things when you get to the, like, these huge walls that you can do. You can go under, obviously. You can go over, maybe. You can go through if you've got the right stuff. Uh, you can like, make like a Trojan horse t- kind of thing, lure them out or get your guys in, or you can lay siege and starve them out pretty much, right? So he's got all these things that he can do in his own human strength. He knows what to do. He's a general. So Jesus comes to him before this battle and says, uh, here's what the battle plan's gonna be. And he says, guess what? Go get your trumpets. Go get your the worship leader. You're going to walk around for seven days, and you're going to play some worship, right? And then you're going to all shout, and the walls are going to fall down. You know, and I just imagine Joshua being there like, okay, he's going to go over, under, through. And Jesus comes to him and says, uh, no, we're, the battle plan is, is go get the worship team. You know, and I just think, like, imagine a modern day with, like, our guitars and our, and our stuff. And, but God does it his way to show that it's him doing it, not Joshua winning the battle. See, the truth is we are created for his glory, as it talks about in Isaiah 43. And when God says, I will bless you, it's 
not for your sake, it's for my name's sake, Ezekiel 36, when he talks about putting new flesh on de- dead and dry bones. It's so that when God does something, even for people that profane his name among all the nations, Ezekiel 36, that, that all the nations will see that he is the one true and holy God. Furthermore, we know because Revelation 7 says this, 9 and 10. And th- after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So from cover to cover we see this in Scripture. God is all about His glory and achieving His will and His purpose. Who because of the great love with which He loved us decided in his grace and his mercy, to make us a part of it. So we know that this commission will be achieved because God all through Scripture is about accomplishing his purpose. And he said that he is going to do this. And so my money is on. He's going to do it. All the other things he said he was going to do are done if, if you look at them. Furthermore, we know it's achievable because God puts his spirit in us, right? He's, he's like, you can't do this alone. You need me. The whole point is that we need him with us. Where he goes, we go. Where he tells us to be, we go. This is how Paul and the rest of the apostles were able to accomplish what we'll be talking about here uh, in a couple weeks in Acts about doing life together. When we see the explosion of the early church, it's because the apostles were following what Jesus had just told them. And they were doing it in his power, not their own strength. That is why we go into all the world. Because God is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. But he's also worthy of those everywhere. Instead of Allah, instead of Buddha, instead of some crazy animal spirits, there's one God and he alone is worthy of their worship too. And he said, I'm going to put my spirit in you that you can accomplish my goals. So how do we get to that place? I'm going to do this. Okay. So how do we get to that place? In a word, transformation has to take place. So it's a non-negotiable. It is achievable. And we need transformation to take place. Uh, if you look at Mark 1, uh, 17, it says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So we just went through this several weeks back, or months back now, um, where Jesus says, Look, follow me, and I'm going to make you become fishers of men. Jesus took a bunch of uneducated, normal, blue-collar guys who are fishermen and, and tax collectors, and uh, just guys you wouldn't expect to do this, but we just talked about how God doesn't do what we expect all the time. Like Eric said, he didn't come as like this great king when he said, I'm going to send my Savior into the earth. He came as a humble baby, and in the most humble way, in a manger. Nothing special about it. But here we see God again not doing what we think he's going to do, and achieving his purpose the whole time. 
he took a bunch of these guys who were just your everyday average dudes and made them the apostles, like the apostles, like big A apostles that changed the world. So there's two things for being a disciple when it really boils down to it. There's more, uh, but two main things here. It requires a transformation that only Jesus can cause. Do you get that? It's a transformation that only Jesus can cause because we live in an age of there's a lot of paths to the truth when Jesus said there was one way to God and no one enters except through me, John 14, 6. It requires a transformation that only Jesus can cause. R.C. Sproul said this, Christianity is not about involvement with a religious experience as a tangent. It involves a meeting with a holy God who forms the core and the center of human existence. In other words, God defines our entire life and worldview. And you see that with the apostles, right? Like you see these these disciples, these guys who... uh, Nothing special about them. They're fishermen. They don't have all these learning and degrees or theology or any of this. They spend time with Jesus and they become these great fishers of men, these apostles who shaped the world actually as we know it today because there was a transformation that took place in their hearts that only Jesus could cause. The gospel is a life-changing gospel. The disciples didn't have to be like coerced into going out and spreading the word of Jesus, right? Like, in fact, Jesus did the opposite. He was like, whoa, 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 don't, don't leave right now, right? Because he's telling them before he goes up into heaven that you're going to go. He gives them the commission, and he says, but you got to wait because I'm going to send my spirit who's going to help you. He's like, Peter, you're going to blow it because he knows Peter. If you just go out and you try to do this, you're going to be cutting people's ears off, telling them about me, and it's not going to go well at all. So he says, wait, and my spirit is going to come, and he's going to help you. But they had an experience, a meeting with the holy God, and he was the center of their existence. He defined their life and their worldview. The other thing about being disciples is disciples make disciples. This is one of those, it's also a non-negotiable of this. It's like, if you're a disciple... You make disciples. It's in the DNA from the beginning. That's why Jesus said, you're going to be my disciples, and I'm going to make you into fishers of men. You're going to make more disciples of me. This how this whole thing is going to work. <clears throat> so my question is, how, how have you done on that? How have we done on that? How many fishes have you brought in? How many people are are you in discipleship with? I know a lot of us are, which is great. But it's in the DNA, and it needs to be in our DNA that we are disciples and we are discipling. And I know that's going to be unpacked later as we talk about doing life together in Acts. See, it's not just for people, like I said earlier, with the gift of evangelism. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for youth leaders. But it's for everyone who believes. It's for everyone. If I'm a disciple of Jesus, then it is implied 
I'm making disciples. I'm going to Pantata Ethne, wherever they may be, wherever God sends me. I'm going. And, and I would suggest, so if, if you're thinking, okay, well, this really hasn't been me. Uh, this isn't what I do. Um, the question becomes, have you had that transformation? Have you experienced that transformation in your life? And, and are you a disciple? And that really, that's the same question, just phrased differently. And by that, I don't mean, have you said the sinner's prayer? Or are you a good person? I'm asking, have you had a transformation? Because we live, sadly, in an age where, like Jesus said, in the end, there's going to be these false teachers. These false gospels are going to arise, and they're going to twist Scripture. And so people think that, wow, if I'm just good enough, then, then I'm fine. I've got my ticket. I don't have to go out. I don't have to make disciples. That's for people who like, are crazy enough to go move to Africa or go to Syria or, or whatever and do the work there. No, no, no. That's for everybody. But there has to be a transformation. What I mean is, have you had an experience with God, the God of the universe, that resulted in a transformation in your heart, in your mind, in your life? Like R.C. Sproul said, your entire worldview is now through the lens of Jesus and what he has commanded, non-negotiable, go. And so everything we do flows from that. So that the things that you used to love, you now hate because they were sinful things of the world. And now the things you love are the things of God and you're growing in that and you're pursuing Jesus. You're becoming more and more like him. And sadly, like I said, it's an uncommon thing in this age of like the weak sauce gospel of health and wealth and repetitive rituals and prayers that aren't found in the Bible, like the sinner's prayer, by the way. And now I don't mean to undermine that. If that was your experience, Praise God. He uses anything. He will use it. He can use a donkey to accomplish his purpose. So yes, he can use a prayer. Uh, I don't diminish that at all. But much more effective is if we biblically respond to God, if we repent and we believe, as Jesus said. Where the command in these places has changed from go from, from, from go, right, to Pantata Ethne, to come and sit once a week in one location and hear someone talk for 35 minutes, and then that's it. You're good. You're done. Ticket to heaven punched. Something that has always really sat with me and, and really driven me to be focused on this is what it says in uh, Matthew 7, 21, is Jesus says, there's going to be a time when I come back, and uh, on that day, people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we uh, tell people? Didn't we do all this stuff for you? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Because a couple things. One, there's probably no transformation. Two, they tried to do it in their own strength without him. In fact, um, who was it? It was David Platt, I believe, who said this. What if one of the uh, biggest obstacles to the spread of the gospel today is not radical Islam or this like uh, 
culture of sexuality and sensuality and consumerism that we live in, but what if it's actually the church of God going about accomplishing the will of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God? I think there's going to be a wake-up on that day, and I hope some of us would wake up before then. I want to leave you with one final thought. The reality is we don't know Jesus' definition of people groups or people who are reached by the gospel. Um, we don't know his definition of what he's calling pantata ethne, all peoples. He just said we've, we've got broadly all peoples. Uh, he could return in one minute, in one hour, or at 1,000 years. We don't know. But what we do know is our non-negotiable command to obey and go to all those peoples, all the ones we can find, all the ones we know of to go. And, and truthfully, we're missing the Great Commission if we're neglecting to go to all people. If, if we're satisfied with, well, God has you know, just put people around me and I'm, I'm gonna, I feel called to, to Eastern or the Eastern Shore or something like that. That's great. If, the, if that is true, absolutely. Go for it. Make disciples. But my question is, are you? If you were called here, are, are you? Um, because really it's a both and, not a one or the other. To make disciples where God has placed you, but don't become complacent and just hang out there. In fact, I would encourage us to pray, to go, to give. And maybe you're thinking like, well, okay, but you know, why can't we just like send help to the locals? Why can't we just give people who are already in those countries that I don't want to go to because they have way too many mosquitoes some money and they'll do it because <laughs> that's what unreached means. There, there ain't no locals. And so where that is the case, guess what? Disciple of Jesus you and I are called to go be that local. Seriously. And it will cost us. Jesus promised that. You know, I imagine that Satan knows the Great Commission. You know, he probably knows it by heart. He's got that, uh, that Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, like plastered all over his stuff. He's got like sticky notes with it because he knows when his Jesus' disciples go and they spread the gospel to all peoples, pantata ethne, then Jesus is going to come back and that's going to be a really bad day for him. And he wants to do whatever he can to oppose it and oppose the people who are trying to accomplish it because he would much rather have us sit here and hang out and sing our kumbaya songs and go through these programs and, and get like professionals to come in and, and do all this stuff than actually go out and accomplish the will of God. We can be just as disobedient sitting in here on Sunday as we can uh, anywhere else. <laughs> but... We serve one who is greater than all those things, whose spirit is unstoppable, and whose will will be accomplished more surely than the sun will rise, and who has decided because of the great love with which he loved us to make us a part of that if we would be obedient and go. I want to leave you with a uh, quote. George Ladd said this, God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, 
Only God knows the exact meaning of evangelize. He alone, who has told us that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all nations, will know when that objective has been accomplished. But, this is what I like, but I did not need to know. I only know one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. So as long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission.